At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jubasites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Most journeys don't involve going in a straight line from point A to point B. There are usually twists and turns along the way. Sometimes we blow it and have to make a fresh start. So how can we get it right in our journey with Christ? There is a book in the Old Testament that can really help. We are in the process of working through the book of Numbers. We're not going through it uh, through every verse, but we're picking certain sections to focus in on some key days in the life of Israel. Numbers place, let's just remember a little background on the book of Numbers. Numbers place in the big five, the Pentateuch. Genesis is the origin story. It tells us about how everything came to be and how Israel came to be God's people. Exodus is the story of how God redeemed his people. And then Leviticus says, here's how a redeemed people should live. Numbers is a 38-year-long travel diary. They were on a road trip for 38 years, except there was no road. Deuteronomy is Moses' big pep talk before game day. And so we're in the process of looking at Numbers, which is this interesting book, because the title is actually pretty ironic. Uh, There are a lot of counts in the book of Numbers, but the message of the book of Numbers is it's not about the numbers. I like the Hebrew title for the book, which is Bamidbah, which means in the desert of. The desert was God's classroom for training and preparing Israel for a great adventure. Now, how is this book beneficial to us? Numbers recounts numerous incidents in which Israel makes a poor choice and then it reaps consequences. And God, through Moses, has provided the very clear explanation of what did they do and how did they make this poor decision? How did they get there? And so we can actually learn from their mistakes, which that's one of the keys of wisdom, is learning from other people's mistakes if you can, and you'll save yourself the trouble. 
Paul actually recommends, the Apostle Paul actually recommends the book of Numbers to us. In 1 Corinthians 10.1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Then verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. By the way, that's an understatement. <laughs> uh, two out of 600,000 made it. And then in verse 11, Paul says this, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, the account that we are reading or that was just read to us from Numbers was actually written for our benefit. It was designed for us to better understand how they blew it so that we can get it right. Well, the day the spies returned is the day that we're going to look at in uh, today's sermon, which is the passage that was just read, Numbers 13, verses 25 through 33. You're welcome to turn there because we'll be picking up what we do from that passage. Now, this passage tells us about the first of three consecutive days that chronicled one of the worst decisions that Israel ever made. I say one of the worst because the crucifixion of Jesus was certainly in that category as well. But this one plays out over three days. The day that the spies returned, where they give a report after a 40-day foray into the promised land. Then the next day, Israel makes a decision. We're not going to take the land. And then the following day is the day after, and something profound happens on that day. So day one is going to give us insight. It's the 24-hour the period before they make this horrible decision. And I want you to understand something that is quite profound that is found in this passage that helps us understand how did they make such a stupid decision. We get clues in what was just read to us. So let's review. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, which was two weeks ago, that was year two, month two, day one of their journey. So they were two year, actually one year, one month out from Egypt. And we learned on the day of the census, God is our difference maker. We learned with me, without me. Numbers 10, 11, which is the passage that we looked at last week, that was year two, month two, day 20. So 19 days later, the, the cloud lifted for the first time and Israel started journeying with God. And we looked back at what made that possible and we saw that God's grace is our protection. It was possible for them to journey with God because of what had happened in the darkened circle. So they started this journey uh, beginning in chapter 10, verse 11, and went from Sinai to Kibroth Hatava, and then went to Hezeroth or Paran. And Paran is actually the southern entry point into the promised land. It's not on the east of the Jordan, which is where they eventually did come into the land, but this is uh, kind of a midpoint. Uh, if you were to draw a line south from Bethlehem, 
Paran will be in that district, but in the desert. So it's kind of a southern entry point into the promised land. And at God's command, a leader was chosen from each of the 12 tribes. God said, pick one man who will represent that particular tribe. And these 12 spies took a 40-day journey into the promised land to survey the land, to take the measure of its inhabitants. They were to assess the agriculture, the productivity of the land, look at fortifications and inhabitants. It'd be similar to what kids love to do, at least our kids, especially our daughter, Arian, love to do with Christmas presents. You know, shake it, weigh it, see the balance, you know, look at the size of the package. And, and, she's, and she was really good at figuring out what all the presents were. Uh, with our grandkids, the presents are off limits <laughs> because we know they're gonna figure stuff out before, so they can't touch them right now. We're in the no touch stage. What Israel was allowed to do was to send these 12 spies into the land and actually kind of shake the present. In fact, actually peek at it, see it, look at it, see what's in it. And they got a sneak peek of this gift that God announced he was gonna give to Israel. No one, including Moses, had any firsthand experience of the conditions in the promised land. I mean, it was 400 years earlier that uh, the sons and daughters of Jacob went to Egypt where Joseph was. So there was no one, including Moses, who had any experience of this land. God said, I've got a gift for you. They didn't know what it was. So it is a complete unknown. Now, God's gonna give them a glimpse of something he is gonna provide for them. But Israel's track record with God's provision is not real impressive. For example, in Numbers 11, this is after the cloud lifted, we read this. Now the people, this is in verse one. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. Are we there yet? This is, this is so, I don't like this. And they were whining. <laughs> then it says in, in chapter 11, verse four, uh, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? They were crying saying, I want a burger. <laughs> I want some meat. God was providing manna for them, which was the perfect nutritional aid that was gonna allow them to survive and be healthy for 40 years. And yet they're saying, you know, God, we don't like the menu. Oh, I remember what it was like in Egypt. Oh, we had leeks and garlic and now man in the morning manna for lunch, manna for dinner, and they sound like Eeyore. <laughs> in Numbers 14, which we'll look at next week, God makes this statement. He says, surely all the men have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice. So before arriving at Paran, they had actually whined and complained and resisted God 
10 times. Now it's possible that's a Hebrew idiom for often, but it's either literal 10 times or a lot. So when the spies go to spy out the land, Israel doesn't have a really good track record of being grateful for God's gifts. When God gave them manna, they said, we want meat. When God provided deliverance, they said, we want comfort. Israel is fixated on the ways that God's gifts don't meet their expectations. And by the way, this is a great place for a dad joke. You know, um, they are fixed on the ways in which God's gifts, including manna, don't meet, M-E-A-T, their expectations. Waka waka. This has become habitual. They're focused on the donut hole, not the donut. Now, how many of you have been, you go ahead and raise your hand, how many of you have been to Gibson's Donuts? Come on now, there's got to be some more honesty here. All right, yeah, absolutely. They make great donuts, don't they? Have you ever thought of complaining about the center that's missing? Well, this is a great donut, but they left some of it out. And they're fixed on what they view as the deficiency of the gift. And that's been the track record for Israel. Ten times or often, when God gives them something, let's say it's the manna, they're saying, yeah, but it doesn't taste like leeks and onions. Not a good place. Can you imagine giving something to someone, numerous gifts that promote the good of the person that you're giving? Great gifts. And every time they find something to complain about. I'm amazed, really, that God didn't give up on Israel. But he did not. Now, granted, it was an option that God presented to Moses on the day we'll look at next week. But it provoked a godly response from Moses. God's original promise to Israel has not wavered. When God first talked to Moses, he, he said... Uh, to them, this is in, to Moses at the burning bush at Sinai. He said, so I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Basically, what God said to Moses, at this point, Moses is the only one who knew it. I want you to go to Egypt you're going to rescue my people. The sign is that I'm doing this is you're going to come to Sinai and then I am going to give you this land. And it's my gift to you and to Israel. Here on the very day in which he's saying send out the spies. So from 13 verses 1 and 2 he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Israel, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their families, father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. God's plan hasn't changed. 
Even though they've got a serious case of donut hole-itis, they've been whining and complaining about the things that God has done. God still wants to do them good. So the spies come back and they say, there is a lot to like about God's gift. Verse 27, it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is its fruit. And they bought, brought back some fruit from the land. But they said, but there's a lot not to like. They made this statement, we are not able to go up against this people for they are too strong for us. That's actually not inaccurate, is it? What do they forget? With me, without me. Yeah, we don't have the resources to do this. But God does. Notice what's happening here. They have moved from benefit assessment. In other words, let's, let's take the measure of the good gift that God wants to give us to obedience determination. Based on our evaluation of what God wants to give us, we're going to decide whether we will obey him or not, whether we will follow him or not. The spies' report was not just about, let us tell you about this amazing gift God has. But it was also, you know what? I'm not confident we should do what God is asking because from my perspective, this doesn't look like a very good gift. They are examining God's gift for the purpose of deciding, get this, if they will follow God. And they're about to make a fatal blunder. Their previous experience has reinforced a very practical allegiance to the Lord. You know, we're, we're committed to the Lord for the goods and services that he provides. They've previously complained about adversity and even provision that was not to their liking. When God, you know, they, after a month and a half, they had no food and they were saying, there is no way anyone can survive here. God says, that is correct, except for what proceeds from me. And then he provided the manna. And they're complaining about it. Uh, here's Psalm's summary. Psalm 106 gives us a summary of what's happening right now. It says, then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. God says, I have this great gift for you. And they said, we don't like your gift. They view an asset that God wants to give them as a liability. And they're going to decide whether to unwrap his gift based on their personal assessment of its value. In essence, they've appointed themselves as the arbiters of what is good. God, you, you call this a good land? We don't think so. What are they saying? They're saying, we know better than you do, God. And in this, this is what is so shocking and sobering. 
They are making God accountable to themselves. You, God, are to give us what we decide is good. What are you thinking, God? This gift is nothing of the sort. Later, 38 years later, when Israel is about to go into the land and Moses provides the pep talk before game day, he summarizes what happened and he provides another insight into what happened on this particular day. Here's the account. This is from Deuteronomy 1 and I want to read you several verses that are Moses recounting of what happened the day the spies came back. Then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way in which we should go and the cities which we shall enter. Now so far so good. The thing pleased me and I took 12 of your men, one man for each tribe, yet you were not willing to go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and you grumbled in your tents and said, now get this, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. They actually think God hates them because he hasn't given them what by their estimation he should have. They've made a determination. This promised land is a hate gift. It's a Trojan horse. It's something you're going to give us that is going to lead to our demise and our destruction. Now here's the bottom line of where this is going. They really do not know God. And it shows in how they're reacting to his gift. If they knew who God is, that God gives good gifts. God only gives good gifts. If they understood who God is, they wouldn't have arrived at this place. The fact that they're reacting the way they are says you don't really know who God is. It's true of us too. Our gift reaction indicates what we think of the giver. When God has given us something, maybe it's something that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, or when God withholds something that we have been pleading for him to do, and we're frustrated and discouraged and disappointed, maybe even angry at God, we're betraying the fact that we don't know the giver. They are about, Israel is about to forfeit something that is incredibly good that God wants to give them. Why? Because they have convinced themselves that God's gift is bad because it does not meet their expectations. When you believe lies about God, you will not receive the good gifts God has for you. The greatest gift ever given was the gift of what happened on this cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins and for your sins so that I could stand in the very presence of God and look him in the eye unashamed. I look at the cross and I say, he loves me enough to send his son to die in my place 
that gift shows me who he is. But there are those who look at the cross and they say, I despise that thing because that's just God's plan to take away my freedom to live the way I want on my terms. And they despise the gift because they think the giver is not the giver of good gifts. So here's our principle that we want to extract from this passage. God's gifts are good. So let me bring it close to home. Even when God is giving you something you would not choose for yourself. Have you had that happen? Where God has given you something that you would not have chosen for yourself? Don't fixate on the perceived negatives of the gift. Get this, fix your eyes on what you know about the giver. This is where Israel went wrong even before they blew it on the next day. They were fixated on the things that from their perspective were the disappointments of God's gift. Instead of focusing on this, God is our difference maker. God's gifts are good because God is good. And if he gives me something that I wouldn't have chosen for myself, it's because he knows better and I can trust him. If God doesn't give me something that I am pleading for and longing for, it's because God knows better and I trust him. This is what we know. Psalm 84, 11. Good verse to memorize. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. Get this. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In other words, if I am seeking to live for him, and if he doesn't give me something that I think I need, he's protecting me from an idiot desire. (laughs) I want something that's going to hurt me. Because he never withholds something good from those who are walking uprightly. And if he gives me something, even something that I wouldn't have picked, something that's making me go, why God, why are you doing this? This is my bedrock. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It is my good because God's gifts are good. Israel thinks this is an impossible gift. You know, they're rejecting it because they're thinking, look at us, there's no way we're going to take on this group of people. Yeah, but God does not give impossible gifts. For example, Zechariah once said this to Israel, and this is after this account, but it's relevant to a similar incident. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it not also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Your gauge of what is impossible is not my gauge of what is possible. Frankly, there is nothing that is impossible. With three exceptions, and I'll tell you about those sometime later. God cannot sin is one 
Israel looks at the land and they say, no way. And God says, yes, way. Jesus said this, looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. If I give you a gift that makes you think there is no way I can pull this off, God says, correct, but I can with you. Let me describe some of the gifts that Father gives, all right? Just let's, let's get a sense of God's gifts are good. And I want to focus on several that to me really zero in on the things that uh, we struggle with. Some of the gifts Father gives are time release gifts. Uh, something whose value will become obvious in a later moment. Now, there's a wonderful example from the Old Testament. It actually occurred 400 years before Israel stood where they did at Paran. A man by the name of Joseph was despised by his brothers. And they were going to kill him, but one brother intervened and said, let's throw him in this pit. And then they sold him to a caravan that was headed to Egypt, where he eventually became the slave uh, for a certain man named Potiphar. And he was falsely accused of something, which then put him in prison. And he was in prison for years. Now, would you call that a gift? <laughs> hey, Joseph, got something really good for you. You're going to be rejected by your family. You're going to be sold into slavery. You're going to be falsely accused. You're going to end up in prison. How's that working for you? Gonna, you like it? But that was the way for God, and God does this. He prepositions solutions. That was the way for God to get Joseph to Egypt and eventually put him right next to the right person so that he eventually was promoted to become the second in command of all of Egypt and become the means of the deliverance of his family. So much so that when his family came to him, here's one of the things he said. This is from Genesis chapter 50, verses 20 and 21. He says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These are the brothers who betrayed him, who wanted to kill him. And yet he understands this principle. God's gifts are good. Even when he gives me something that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. But some of God's gifts are time release gifts. And this particular gift was something that I had no clue it was a gift. Until years and years later. And now I see God was doing good to me and to you. And I'm not going to take it out on you. For what you did. God was simply working his plan to do good to you, and I'm going to do good to you. 
Some of the things that God has given you, you would, that you wouldn't choose for yourself are a part of his essential preparation of you for something that he wants to do that's yet to come. God's gifts are good. There's the pre-gift. It's a gift that prepares for another gift. This one, Israel actually experienced in Deuteronomy 8. Moses is recounting their experience. And he says this to them. He humbled you and let you be hungry. That was a gift. (laughs) That was a gift from God. For you to go a month and a half with no food. So that you would understand it is not possible to survive in the wilderness on what we brought. I don't care how good your go bag is or what kind of resources you've tucked away on your cart from Egypt. You're not going to make it. So now I'm going to provide for you. And that period of 18, uh, of a month and a half is actually preparing you to realize something which is without God, we don't stand a chance. But with God, we're going to make it. We're going to be supplied. We're going to have what we need. So the pre-gift was the absence of food that prepared them to receive the gift. In fact, God does this a lot. And not just because of sin. He actually did this in the Garden of Eden. He prepared Adam for the perfect gift that was the woman by first saying, hey, let's go kind of check out what's here and see if you see something that answers to this deep longing in your heart. Okay, Stegosaurus, not feeling it. Uh, Brontosaurus, man, I don't know, gerbils. uh." And then he sees the woman and he goes, oh, wow. That's almost what the language is in the original. That period of the absence prepared him for the provision some of what God is doing in your lives right now is he's giving you a gift that is a pre-gift it's designed to prepare you for something that he's going to give you that your appreciation of it and your uh, sense of its value is going to be off the chart because you know what it is without that gift Some of what God gives are what I'm going to call father gifts. You know, there's the time release gift, the pre-gift. There's also the father gift. Hebrews 12 says this. We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yeah, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There are things that God is going to give to you that are going to hurt, but they are going to allow you to press in and go deeper with God and become more like his son. Some gifts come with risk for example Hosea says of Israel as they had their pasture and there's actually came eventually they came into the land and life was good as they had their pasture they became satisfied and being satisfied 
their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. When Israel came into the land, it was very clear when you see the walls of Jericho falling that there is no way this is happening short of God going before us. But eventually they forgot about God. They forgot, you know what? The life that we enjoy is because of the goodness of God. Sometimes Father's good gift is the denial, is the denial of something we long for that he knows would work our harm. What is your heart waking for? You know, you've, you've come into this room and I am reasonably confident that for some of you, maybe all, I don't know, there is a longing in your heart, something you're saying, God, I am desperate for you too. Or there's something that he has given you that you said, I don't see how this is something that can be used to accomplish my good. He's given you something and you're saying, please take this away, enough already. Here's my application for you. Thank God when he gives you something you would not have chosen for yourself. He's being a good father. He's giving you what he, as a good father, knows will work your good. And he's not going to withhold anything good. Thank him when he withholds because he knows what he's doing. If we truly believe God's gifts are good, then we need to cultivate a habit of replacing grumbling with gratitude because we have faith in the giver more than on our own perceptions of the quality of the gift. You know, I can't help but think of a story from a, a friend. Interestingly, her name is Grace. And Grace was on a plane. I don't know where she was flying to. But the plane encountered some significant turbulence uh, the, you know, so much so that the whole plane cabin was quiet, you know, as they would hear this. And <laughs> there was somewhere, she doesn't know where, but close enough to where she could hear it. Uh, there was a, a child, maybe about a year old or something like that, and in being held by her father. And while the plane was doing this, she was giggling. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I can't do a kid giggle quite like a kid can do it. But anyway, she was just loving it. She thought, this, was, this is so fun. <laughs> she thought dad was playing games with her. I love that picture because when God hands us something, yes, father's good. And I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know who he is, and I'm grateful. And I, so I'm going to just raise hands like on a roller coaster, and I'm going to roll through this because I know God's gifts are good. Well, I'd love to pray for you, but I'd love to pray especially 
for those whose hearts are aching. Has God given you something that you would not have chosen for yourself? Are you struggling right now because you're saying, God, I so wish this was gone. Or are you struggling because he has withheld something you long for? That you're saying, God, please. Maybe you've been asking him to do this work for years. Well, I want to pray for you right now, but especially anyone whose heart is aching because of something that God has given you or has not given you. Let's pray. Father, you know, you know with perfect detail what you have appointed for every person in this room. You know their situation. I am not going to bring anything to your attention that you do not already know inside and out. But I also know that uh, I suspect that there are in this room aching hearts. It's possible that someone in this room longs for a child to turn to you. There is someone in this room perhaps who is struggling because a, a medical situation just won't let up. They're like Paul, they're pleading, would you remove this thorn? And so far the answer has been no, my grace is enough. Father, I am praying that you would give to each aching heart in this room a very clear, palpable sense of your presence with them and your love for them and your desire to give them that which will promote their true good. And I pray that they would be at peace. They would be like the child who's giggling in the turbulence because they know the giver. Father, I pray that you would make your presence so real to each person in this room, that they would know God is good. His gifts are good. I can trust him, even though it doesn't look to me like this could work out. But I trust him. And he is my perfect father who knows what he's doing. And I trust him. In Jesus' name, amen.